and welcome to This is True Crime, y'all, a true crime podcast with a decidedly Texas twist. I'm your host, Melissa Anderson, coming to you from the live music capital of the world, Austin, Texas. I've researched, produced, and narrated this podcast for all the true crime junkies just like myself. Here's a heads up. If you hear a constant barking in the background, rest assured you are not going crazy. My neighbors just never bring their dog inside. I know, I know. Why have a dog to leave it outside all damn day? I will never understand. However, I digress. Now, Back to the task at hand. Our subject today will be Robert Craig Cox, a kidnapper, robber, murderer, and straight-up garbage human being. The state of Florida would disagree with me, stating that he's a murderer, but they are just plain wrong in my humble opinion. He was convicted by a jury of his peers and sentenced to death but the appeals court would disagree and overturn his murder conviction about a year later. But we'll discuss that in depth later in the episode. Robert Craig Cox was born October 6, 1959, and he is currently inmate number 00738775, incarcerated in the Allen B. Polunsky unit of a Texas prison. He's in the big house, as we say down south, and he is serving a life sentence. You know how they say everything is bigger in Texas? Well, this is the Supermax unit, and it is the location of the Texas death row for men. This is not where they hold executions, though. Those are at the Huntsville unit. So I'm just going to tell you that I could find out very little about his early home life or anything really besides his date of birth and where he's committed crimes. I think a lot of this is due to the wild speculation of his involvement in the disappearance of the Springfield Three, and the abundance of articles relating to that alone. But that's on our list of crazy shit to talk about later. All the information I could really find out was that he was once named Soldier of the Year, and was a highly trained army ranger that had an exemplary career and took part in the 1983 invasion of Granada and eventually reached the rank of second lieutenant. But let me be brutally honest, I don't really give two shits or a fuck about what made him the scumbag that he is today. Whether you believe in nature or nurture, the end result of his story is that he's a bad guy, by all accounts. We're going to begin by discussing the crimes he committed in California. In 1985, in August, a young girl named Kathleen Boyce was arriving at her home in Crestview, California. As she's exiting her vehicle, Cox, who was following her, jumped from his car, grabbed her, threw her to the ground, placed a seven-inch knife to her throat and told her, Go with me. Don't scream or I'll kill you. The woman struggled and fought against Cox, badly cutting her hands. Bleeding all over his car, she eventually persuades Cox to take her to a hospital. When police show up, he flees. 
They later find him at his home with an arsenal of weapons and handcuffs. Then, in December of 1985, he kidnaps Gidget Wickham, who was stationed with the U.S. Army in Fort Ord, California. Mrs. Wickham was at the airport when she went to retrieve her luggage. As she was leaving, Cox asked her for a ride to the base, and she said yes. When they're on the way, Cox draws a firearm and tells her, we are not driving to the base, but we're driving to the mountains. This terrifies her. She eventually escapes after she gets Cox to stop by a friend's house. Police arrest Cox after he holds the friend hostage at gunpoint, threatening to kill the man and then himself. I mean, is this the dumbest fucking guy ever? I'm glad these people weren't harmed, but why stop at a friend's house? What could she possibly have said to him while he's holding her at gunpoint? I just kind of need to know that information. Anyway, she's remained haunted by him to this day. There was no question in her mind that he was going to kill her had they driven into the mountains, says her mother, Marge Lawyer. He had the gun stuck in her side while she drove. Lawyer also said her daughter locks her doors with deadbolts and sleeps in the family room with the lights and TV on every night. She's getting counseling, but she will be in total fear when she learns he's getting out of prison again. Cox pled guilty to kidnapping and assault charges. A pre-sentence investigator concluded that Robert Cox is a dangerous man and found little to explain his bizarre behavior other than to say that once he sets his mind to something, he does it. Now let's get down to the meat and potatoes of the arrest, conviction, appeal, and eventual acquittal of his Florida crime of murder in the first degree. The story of Sharon Zeller's unfortunate demise began on December 30th, 1978. She was working at Disney World in Orlando where she was a clerk at the Frontierland Trading Post. She left work at her usual 10 p.m., but never arrived home. At the end of her work shift, she called her parents to tell them she was going to meet friends for breakfast. She promised to call when she left the restaurant. However, she never did. She was a quiet and cautious person, recalled her brother. When she didn't make it home, we started to panic. Her dad had taught her the route to and from Disney World, taking her along a stretch of the West Colonial Drive. She never strayed from that route, her brother said. And four days after she vanished, Sharon Zeller's car was found in an orange grove eight miles from her route home. The back seat was missing and to this day has never been recovered. That is ominous. Two days later, her body was found in a stinking, 
filthy sewage pumping station pipe. Her body was decomposing fast due to all the waste. A 19-year-old Cox was staying with his parents at the Days Inn off of Sand Lake Road, which was a mere 340 feet from the manhole where her body was discovered. Now, for the weird-ass story that Cox tells as he stumbles into his hotel room, bleeding from the mouth to confront his parents. Cox, who was stationed at Hunter Army Base in Savannah, Georgia, was on vacation with his parents. When he stumbles into his motel room, bleeding from the mouth and about to pass out, he was missing a quarter inch of his tongue. He told his family that he had accidentally bitten it off when a, quote, big black man hit him during a fight outside a skating rink off Kirkman near Highway 50. Now, there's a police officer stationed at the skating rink, but instead of telling the officer there, he says he drives around and then just goes home. A sheriff's deputy was later called to the hotel to take the complaint after a security guard at a motel adjacent to there had a report of an injured person in a room rented to Cox and his parents. Now, let's get to why this skating ring is so important. That skating ring he's making reference to is next to an all-night Albertsons and a grocery store where Zellers buys cigarettes on her way home. The murder case of Sharon Zellers is slow going for investigators. Let's remember that it is 1978, and her being dumped in a sewer definitely didn't help any. Investigators do finally notice Cox's, quote, tongue troubles, and put two and two together. The Orange County Sheriff's Detective Al Hansen took his statement, and from that point on, they felt very strongly that Cox was their man. We checked up on a story from that night and it just didn't add up, they say. Basically, Cox said that after the fight, he drove around in his car, got lost, then returned to the rink where a stranger gave him a lift back to the motel. Sounds kind of suspicious. But no blood was ever found in his car, even though there was a trail of blood at the Days Inn leading from the second floor to the third floor. I mean, come on. The Good Samaritan who gave him a ride could never be found. The deputies working at the rink said no fight ever took place, despite what this shit stain said. Police believe that Cox abducted Sharon, forced her to drive to the Sandy Grove, and then lost his tongue after she bit it off when he tried to assault her. They believed the well-built army ranger who just finished basic training flew into a rage and beat her to death with an unknown object. 
The coroner ruled she had been beaten on the head at least 14 times with a blunt object. Even though detectives had what they thought was a concrete case, Mr. Cox was not charged until nine years after her death. If Mr. Cox loses this one, he can keep going back to the courts over and over again. But for us, it's the end of the rope, and that's just not fair, said her father. At the trial, a surgical nurse was identified who had assisted in the surgery of the injury to Cox's tongue. She testified that on the night of the surgery, she and the surgeon were told how Cox had injured his tongue. Sucker punched at the ice skating rink, mind you. But the shape of the injury to the tongue was completely inconsistent and more consistent with his having his tongue bitten off by someone else. If it was you, Sharon, kudos. Not only that, but the testimony of the detective says that even though Cox says he drove around in his car after being assaulted, there was no evidence of any blood in his car. This is corroborated by the surgeon who testified that until he got surgery, he would be losing copious amounts of blood. Blood experts testified that the blood in Sharon's car matched Cox's blood type. Cox had type O blood, the same type that was found in Zeller's car in the Grove. Though an inconclusive sample, indications of type A blood were found in Cox's motel room. And it is known that Sharon had type A blood. Three hairs found in the victim's car were, quote, indistinguishable from Cox's chest hair, a Chicago scientist testified. A shoe print found in the car was consistent with the type of military boot the defendant wore the night the girl vanished. However, police failed to take boot prints from Cox. A map showed converging paths of the defendant and the victim the night she was last seen alive. Blood in his hotel room, blood in her car, all evidence to the jury that proved he was guilty as sin. Oh, and let's not forget the bizarre super sketchy fucking alibi that he gave to the police that no one can corroborate. The jurors would later say that it was not one single piece of evidence that sealed his fate, but rather all the evidence linked together that convinces them of Cox's guilt. He was found guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death on 10 6 1988. At his sentencing hearing, his two attorneys argue that he should be sentenced to life in prison because he was only 19 at the time of the crime, because of his military record, and because he has developed into a model inmate since being imprisoned three years ago. In his written court order, Judge Richard F. Conrad presiding, says he accepted Cox's record as a soldier and inmate as mitigating factors, 
but he rejected the age argument. Quote, 19 years of age is simply not relevant to his mental and emotional maturity and his ability to take responsibility for his own acts. The evidence clearly shows that Robert Craig Cox was generally considered a strong individual and generally regarded as a young leader. Assistant State Attorneys Jeff Ashton and Fred Lawton argued at a sentencing hearing that Cox should die because of the cruelty of the beating and because Cox was twice convicted of abducting two other women at knife point and gunpoint in 1985 while stationed at Fort Ord, California. The California convictions and cruelty of the beating clearly outweighed any of those circumstances, the judge decided. The descriptions of the skull lacerations, as well as the description and position of the defensive wounds, clearly demonstrates that Sharon Zellers was conscious and aware of the beating which was being imposed upon her head and body, he wrote. Just as they had during the trial and sentencing recommendation, more than 20 of Zeller's relatives packed the courtroom to hear Judge Conrad's decision. But unlike the two previous occasions, there were no emotional explosions of tears or joy. Those two events more or less drained us, said Zeller's father, Charles. The two women Cox kidnapped in California testified at the sentencing hearing as well. At the sentencing hearing, Judge Conrad said, as Robert Craig Cox slammed Sharon Zellers in the head 14 times so hard that he dented her skull, she must have suffered complete and total terror. It is impossible to know the tremendous suffering that Sharon experienced, Conrad wrote in his nine-page order. The judge also wrote that it is impossible to know the tremendous suffering that Sharon experienced. Judge Conrad, age 51, was deciding his first death penalty case since being appointed as a circuit judge that very December. He did not elaborate on his written reasons during a three-minute hearing at which he announced the decision. 29-year-old Cox said nothing. Dressed in a blue jail jumpsuit, handcuffs, chains, he displayed the same bright, confident manner he had throughout his week-long trial in July, nodding continuously as the judge read his paragraph-long decision. He was well-prepared and he expected it, said Assistant Public Defender Kelly Sims. Cox's two attorneys said that he would appeal the verdict and the sentence to the Florida Supreme Court. Robert has said he's not guilty, and he said that since day one, the public defender said. Really, all he could have said again today is that he's being sentenced for something he didn't do. Then, a year later, on December 21st, 1989, a bombshell drops. For this terrible human being and for the Zellers family, when they found out that he was about to be a free man. The Court of Appeals decided that the jurors were wrong. 
The case had not been solved after all. The jurors were mistaken, and the seven justices ruled on Cox's automatic appeal. Not enough evidence. They stated, we reverse it, vacate the death sentence, and direct that Cox be acquitted of this charge. The court ordered his acquittal and release, and the following excerpt is taken from the statement issued by the Court of Appeals. On 3-10-89, the defendant filed his direct appeal initial brief, which including the following claims of trial court error. The evidence was legally insufficient to support a conviction. Improper excusal of two prospective jurors, the state failed to try Cox for the offense within 180 days and did not indict until nine years after the murder, thereby violating the defendant's due process and preventing him from conducting a proper investigation. And that Cox's due process was violated regarding other evidentiary matters. The Supreme Court unanimously agreed that there was insufficient evidence to support the verdict and commented that although the state's evidence would have created a reasonable suspicion, the case was not proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The court stated that the evidence did not prove that Cox and only Cox murdered the victim. The court then vacates his death sentence reverses his conviction, and remands to the trial court to enter an order of acquittal for this crime. Now, I'd like to read you some of an article that was printed by the Houston Chronicle on February 4th, 1990. It reads as follows. Robert Cox is a killer. Robert Cox killed Sharon Zellers. Robert Cox will kill again because you have provided him the opportunity. If the court rejects the prosecutor's motion for a rehearing, which is likely, and Cox is released, he must return to California, where he had been serving a nine-year sentence for kidnapping and assault, where he terrorized the two young women with a knife and a gun. He'll be released sometime next year. If he walks, there'll probably be more victims, said juror Buford Buddy Funk, age 54. And the blood will be on the hands of those seven justices. The ruling is highly unusual, said the clerk of the Supreme Court, Sid White. He can't recall one time in his past 25 years the justices reversed a death sentence and ordered an acquittal. The seven-paragraph opinion written by Judge Chief Justice Raymond Elric did more than simply get Cox off. It completely blindsided the jurors who felt that justice had not been served and that he was indeed guilty of this murder. And I have to agree with them. One juror Carol Duckworth, age 44, said, and I quote, I don't ever want to serve on a criminal jury again. I'll never put myself through that sort of ordeal just to have someone come along and say that I was wrong and that I hadn't made the right decision. Why not just take these cases directly to the Supreme Court, she said.
Why bother us? Frunk agreed. I will never again serve on a capital case. Period. And they can put me in jail if they want to. If he didn't do it and they can prove it, well then, they can electrocute me. Sure, said Funk. There's always the chance that the Orange Grove Fairy did it. But there was not one shred of evidence anywhere that said he didn't do it. I know that's not the way to convict someone, but if it looks like grape jelly, smells like grape jelly, and tastes like grape jelly, well, it's probably grape jelly. Thousands of people are in jail on circumstantial evidence, said Funk, who designs rockets for Martin Marietta Corporation. So where do you draw the line on whether the circumstantial evidence you have is enough? The Supreme Court had no trouble drawing that line. In its opinion, although state witnesses cast doubt on Cox's alibi, the state's evidence would have created only a suspicion, rather than proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Cox, and only Cox, murdered the victim. Are we all crazy? asked juror Nancy D'Aurora in a letter to the justices. The judge, the experts, the jury, the prosecution team, are we all wrong? I don't think so. I feel your frivolous finding is what is wrong, and I am outraged at your handling in this case. If they let their ruling stand, the justices shut tight the door in the face of the Zeller's family. Our daughter was murdered in an attempted rape, said Charles Zellers. Now we've been raped by the justice system. Cox cannot be tried again for these crimes due to the double jeopardy clause in the U.S. Constitution's Fifth Amendment, which states that no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. His brother, Bradley Cox, an electrician in Springfield, Missouri, stands by his adopted brother's story. The family just wanted somebody to hung for that murder, but there was never evidence to convict my brother, he said. I believe he bit his own tongue that night. He got into a fight. He took an uppercut in the chin. The state of Florida wanted to retry him for this case, but was denied. It was cited in court documents as the following. This court has long held that one accused of a crime is presumed innocent until proved guilty beyond and to the exclusion of a reasonable doubt. It is the responsibility of the state to carry this burden. When the state relies upon purely circumstantial evidence to convict an accused, we have always required that such evidence must not only be consistent with the defendant's guilt, but it must also be inconsistent with any reasonable hypothesis of innocence, and that is a lot of jargon. Circumstantial evidence must lead to a reasonable and moral certainty that the accused and no one else committed the offense charged. Circumstances that create nothing more 
than a strong suspicion and that the defendant committed the crime are not sufficient to support a conviction. One of this court's functions in reviewing capital cases is to see if there is competent, substantial evidence to support the verdict. After reviewing this record, we find that the state's evidence is not sufficient to support Cox's conviction. In the victim's car, investigators found a hair, some typo blood, and a boot print, none of which belonged to the victim. These items, along with bite mark testimony and Cox's presence in the area, comprised the state's circumstantial evidence. Although a hair comparison expert testified that the hair was consistent with Cox's hair, hair analysis and comparison are not absolutely certain and reliable and I would say, especially at this time. Now, although a serologist testified that Cox has typo blood, he also testified that 45% of the population has typo blood. Although a non-expert testified that the boot print appeared to have been made by a military-type boot, and although Cox was in the United States Army, and was wearing army boots when he was admitted to the hospital, his boots were not compared with the boot print. Although a surgical assistant testified that she thought the damage to Cox's tongue was more consistent with someone other than Cox having bitten his tongue, no such tissue was found in the victim or her car. Cox did not know the victim, and no one testified that they had ever been seen together. Although state's witnesses cast doubt on Cox's alibi, the state's evidence could have created only a suspicion rather than proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Cox, and only Cox, murdered the victim. After his acquittal and upon hearing of his scheduled release, he was immediately remanded into custody to complete his prison sentence in California. Following his release, he returned to his boyhood home of Springfield, Missouri, where he came under suspicion but was never charged in the 1992 disappearance of a mother and two teenage girls in the infamous case known as the Springfield Three. He then, for whatever reason, took his crimes to Texas. Big mistake, buddy. On November 21, 1994, 22-year-old church worker Rhonda Beck was driving to her home in Plano around 1 a.m. She noticed someone following her. The man was in a small white truck with a yellow light on top and on the side panel it had like SMP or some initials on it. Cox was then working for a company named SMP. Beck parked her car and Cox parked his truck nearby. She got out and saw Cox walk toward her. Ugh. She quickly walked to her apartment, went inside, and locked the doors like a smart person. Through a peephole, she could see Cox outside and watched while he walked up to the door. She testified that, Then I saw his shoulder in the peephole, and that's when I backed up from the door. I mean, he was like right there. She then heard the door handle jiggle. The doorknob jiggled slowly. And then she called the police. Plano officer Susan Baumart responded to the call and found Cox's truck parked at the apartment complex, but she could not find him. 
She moved her police car and was turning around to hide nearby when Plano police officer Daniel Curtis drove up and told her that someone was driving the truck away. The officers followed, stopping the truck, and learned that Cox was driving it. After talking with him and trying unsuccessfully to obtain facts about his identity, they arrested him on charges that he had failed to identify himself to a police officer and had failed to obtain a Texas driver's license within 30 days of becoming a Texas resident. Cox's last crime was in Decatur, Texas, which is a small town northwest of Fort Worth. Cox robbed a woman and a 12-year-old child at gunpoint, taking their money at the ultimate salon and tannery shop, and then put them, along with the five-year-old girl, in a closet and left. The case we just talked about is what led investigators to Cox. After it was discovered that the pickup the defendant was using matched the description of the one utilized in the Decatur robbery. He was apprehended and taken to the Wise County Jail, where his bond was placed at $100,000. He is presently serving a life sentence for that aggravated assault and a consecutive 15-year federal sentence. He will be eligible for parole on March 29, 2025. So in a mere three years from today's date, he will be able to be considered to be released back into the general population, where I have zero doubt that he will go right back to doing his shady shit. I mean, thank fuck, he seems like he's dumber than a box of rocks and will probably get caught again, so I guess there's that. During sentencing, this fucking coward tries to take his own life in a suicide attempt, rather than face his life in prison. Turns out, he's not good at that either. A statement released by Wise County on August 11th, 1995, reads as follows. Former death row inmate, sentenced to life in prison, cuts wrists before punishment phase of the trial. Today, a nine-woman, three-man jury, and Judge John Fostel's 271st District Court in Decatur, Texas, convicted Robert Craig Cox, 35, of Plano, of aggravated robbery, and sentences him to the maximum punishment of life in prison and a $10,000 fine. The trial was delayed for one day on Thursday when the defendant, after having been convicted but not yet sentenced, deeply cut his wrists while incarcerated overnight in the Wise County Jail. After being transported to Peter John Smith Hospital in Fort Worth for medical treatment, Cox was returned to the courtroom, only to tell the court that he did not wish to be present during the punishment phase of the trial. Judge Fostel granted the request and the trial continued anyway. The jury got to hear of Cox's criminal history, which involved the three convictions from California in 1986 for aggravated assault and kidnapping. And even though Cox had been convicted of capital murder in Florida and sentenced to death, the jury was not allowed to hear such evidence due to the fact that the sentence had been overturned on appeal by the Florida Supreme Court in 1990. 
This man has slipped through this country's criminal justice system too many times, said District Attorney Barry Green. Finally, he received the justice he deserved from a Texas jury. Ye fucking haul, like we don't fuck around in Texas. Now, for a more in-depth information about his relationship to the Springfield Three. Through the years, Cox has toyed with the Springfield police, saying he knows the women are dead and they're buried near the city. Having discovered that Cox lied about his alibi on the morning of June 7th, officials are skeptical about his claims. He sent recent letters to the news leader paper where he acknowledges police consider him a suspect and that 10 years ago, he worked as a utility locator in South Central Springfield. Cox actually worked with Stacy McCall's father at a used car dealership as well. But his girlfriend gave him an airtight alibi, claiming they were at church. Cox keep their eye on Cox, but continue chasing other leads. After Robert Craig Cox was arrested in Texas for aggravated robbery, his girlfriend is singing an entirely different tune. She recants his earlier alibi, claiming she has no idea where Cox was. When investigative reporter Dennis Graves from Crime Watch Daily Springfield gets wind of the recanted alibi, he heads to Texas on a hunch. Graves is hoping to find out if Cox knows anything about the missing women of Springfield. Instead, he kind of gets what sounds like a confession from a killer. I know that they're dead. I'll say that. I know that. Cox tells Graves in a recorded interview. But I just know that they're dead. That's not my theory. I just know that. The reporter pushes Cox for more information, but is only told Graves won't give specifics until his dear mother passes. She's currently 82. He's made different statements that of course keep him as a person of interest, but never made any true statements to point us in one direction or another, said Springfield Police Sergeant Todd King. Let's just say he's never been ruled out. The case cools off for a while, and then Kathy Baird steps in. Now she's a freelance journalist in Springfield, Missouri. I was here when they went missing, Baird tells Crime Watch Daily. I was like, let's just give it a shot. Let's see if we can help bring justice for the three women that nobody knows what happened to. And then, in a wild fucking twist, the reporter becomes the story. Baird gets a tip. The tipster says the women are buried beneath a hospital parking garage, which at the time was a dirt lot. She brought that information to police, who did absolutely nothing about it. Um, excuse me? You, you did or you didn't do what now? They pretty much laughed at me, she said. Undeterred, she hires a man who uses high-tech, ground-penetrating radar, capable of finding graves hidden under concrete. He said, I'm getting two images over here and one over here. And I said, oh, 
And that's when I told him I'm working on the disappearance of three women. And he was kind of like, well, this is exactly what I see when I go over old graves. The police, however, say the timeline does not add up. A year after they went missing is when that parking garage started construction. You'd have also guessed that excavation in order to build the parking garage probably would have unearthed them, said King. The police were and still are skeptical and not entirely convinced enough to have samples taken from the concrete to help further the investigation to this specific area and would rather not cause destruction to the property of a very busy hospital. The engineer himself offered to pay for the cost of it all with his own money. Since the engineer made this clear to the police, petitions from local residents have been made in order to have this location at Cox Hospital analyzed and hopefully bring light to overdue answers. It was later discovered that this tipster was actually an online sleuth who proclaimed to be a psychic, which is why law enforcement doesn't consider this information to be credible. When Crime Watch Daily asked Kathy Baird who she believes murdered the women and buried their bodies under the parking lot, the interview takes a strange fucking turn. I believe I know what happened, said Baird. I believe they were killed before morning. Who does she think was the target? It wasn't Stacy, Baird said. So that leaves Susie or Cheryl. Yeah. And Stacy was just collateral damage. Unfortunately, says Baird. What does she believe the motives were for the people that took Stacy, Cheryl, and Susie? I'm not going to talk about that. Kathy Baird says she knows, but she isn't going to tell. When asked why she's doing this interview, she responds, because their story needs an ending. That's why. Frustration soon boils over and the producer jumps in. She says, I'm sorry you don't think I'm giving you the answers that you need or want, but I live here. And yeah, I'm afraid for my safety. We've been boxed in by cars before. Someone came up to me and asked if I was Kathy Baird. And I said, yes. And he said, well, the people I work for make people like you disappear too. I've been advised to leave this case alone. She won't tell us who's threatening her, but she vows she will never leave this case until she can prove who's responsible for making the Springfield Three disappear. There is something very dark in this story, said Baird. Something super frightening when you just get down to it, of who you can trust. Just be very careful. There's a reason this case hasn't been solved. Now, in case you've been living under a rock or something, no, nothing against rocks, but if you don't know what the Springfield Three is referring to, it is an unsolved missing persons case of Suzanne Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall and Streeter's mother, Cheryl Levitt. They went missing from Levitt's home in Springfield, Missouri. All of their personal belongings, including cars and purses, were left behind. There were no signs of a struggle except for a broken porch light globe. 
There was also strange messages on the answering machine that police believe could have provided a clue, but it was erased by someone who came to the house later. To this day, these three women have never been found. If you have any information about the case, please contact the Springfield Police Crime Stoppers at 417-869-TIPS. That's 417-869-TIPS. Now, that's not the only a crime that he's been accused of. He was also a suspect in the I-70-35 killings. In 1996, police held a press conference naming Robert Craig Cox as a suspect. The killer murdered six store clerks in the Midwest in the spring of 1992, and this case also remains unsolved. So that is the story of Robert Craig Cox. And I'm very glad that the state of Texas is keeping this man behind bars when other states failed to. I am concerned about his possible release in 2025. I live here. I go to Fort Worth. I do not want this man on the streets. So, let's hope that the parole board denies the fuck out of his release. I have no doubt that if released, he will immediately reoffend, kidnap, assault, murder more women. That is his modus operandi. Come on. Well, that's literally all she wrote. And by she, I mean me. Thanks for listening and sharing, and I'll see y'all next week.